All right. Can all you athletes hear me? I guess we don't have an athlete here. Okay. <laughs> Good to have you tonight. And if you're visiting, want to welcome you. Uh, those buckets out there are not for collection. <laughs> I think we got a few drip drips. But good to have you and hope that you've come with the express purpose of being encouraged, uplifted, motivated, inspired by the word of God, not me. All I'm here to do is Pete and repeat. <clears throat> amen. All right, y'all going to blink me to death or we going to say amen. Amen. Thank you, black folks. Good to have y'all tonight. <laughs> you did a good job. I'll reward you later. <laughs> that song goes back a long ways. I was taught that song in 1974 by a young man named Willie Williams out of Baytown in Houston, Texas. Don't you want to go to that land? And I thought, man, oh man, 42 years ago when I first learned that song and when I first started adding some of those verses, I've got a savior in that land. Didn't know that, did you? Yeah, you were kind of, I wanted to slow it down a little bit. I've got a savior over in that land. I've got a savior in that land. I said, where I'm bound. But my guys had me going. We did it? All right. Now, y'all probably didn't see these fellas up here, but two of them are my agents and one of them is my bodyguard. Because when you're ugly, you got to have somebody guarding you. <laughs> and they've been looking after me. Had a wonderful day today. Thank you so much, all of you that have been here this morning and this afternoon. And I do want to say some things to move, encourage you, uplift you, motivate you. To inspire you to draw closer to Jesus. I know for the longest time I didn't think Christianity was for me. Being 240 pounds, I just didn't see Christianity for me. I didn't need a crutch. And the world said Christianity was a crutch. I didn't want this mamby-pamby, watered-down religious stuff. And so, I decided to do some research. I wanted to go to the Bible to find out who Jesus was. There's a writer named Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey wrote a book some years ago, 10 years or so ago. It's entitled, the first book was, The Man I Never Knew. Talking about Jesus. Really resonated with me. He wrote a second book entitled Soul Survivor. Just talking about those individuals that impacted his life and made him hold on to his faith through those teen and wild years of 21 and 22. And then he wrote a third book entitled What's So Amazing About Grace? He said in, a, in that book, the English language is accustomed to butchering words. Grass used to be something you cut. Now it's something people smoke. You used to be able to say, I'm so happy and gay. And now you just better say, I'm happy and shut up. Amen. Things change. 
He said grace is the last great English word because everyone still knows what it means. If you rent a DVD, I almost said a eight track, but y'all don't have those no more. <laughs> if you're late returning it, I believe it's called a grace period. People still get it. You can be driving through some of these backwoods of Alabama and some of them poking plum towns. You know those towns by the time you poke your head out of the car, you plumb out of town. You've been through some of them. But you can see in people's windows because the roads are so close and you can see somebody doing what before they eat? Saying grace. He said it's still the last great English word because people still know what it means. John Newton pent those words. John Newton was a slave trader for over 30 years. And he bent the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Many believe that song, the tune of that song comes from a West African sorrow chant that John Newton heard these slaves singing in the bottom of the ship as they were being shipped away from their homeland knowing that they would never return. He didn't know the language, but the tune stayed in his head until he pent those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It is what is called a white spiritual. There are black spiritual songs that have been written and most all of them are written only on the black notes of the piano. And the most famous white spiritual song ever written, famous, is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, played only on the black notes of the piano. You see, it wasn't about knowing music. It was about a heart's conviction that someone had and they pent words not the way they would today but they pent those words because a change began to take place back in 1900 and none of your business as I was searching I left home in 1967 Marcus Allen Terrell Davis all graduated from my high school Abraham Lincoln High School in San Diego, California. I wasn't a football player. Having eight sisters and two brothers, that was just what you went through normally when it was dinner time. Hey, man. Because <laughs> somebody's going to work you over if you're trying to get your hand in there to get something to eat. I had this little white coach. We called him Smitty. Smitty, everybody liked Smitty. He was all about five foot six and a half. And Smitty got along with everybody. I don't care who you were. Don't care what race. And in those days of 1966, 67, our culture was going through a lot of upheaval. But there at Abraham Lincoln High School, we had some of every race there was in the world. San Diego was a melting pot. Military bases. And so kids came from all over the world. They were from Africa, from Jamaica, from Africa from Iraq, from Iran, from Hawaii, from the Solomon Islands, 
from Mexico, from the Dominican Republic. They were, kids were from everywhere. And we all got along at school. But once that bell rang and you left that school, everybody went back into their territorial neighborhoods. Smitty came up to me in 1966 and he said, country. That's what they call my country because everybody knew I was from Louisiana. Never had a girlfriend, but always had a dog. And let me tell you something, my dog was always loyal. <laughs> and so because they never saw me with a girlfriend and I never had one, my sisters were always teasing me because I'd listen in on their phone conversations and I'd hear them talking to their little girlfriends about what guy they kissed. And I said, I'm going to tell mama because, you know, children, younger siblings are informers talking about kissing. And they're like, you don't know nothing about kissing. And of course, I tried to bluff them. I said, I do too. They said, you ain't kissed nothing but your old dog. They didn't know it, but they were right, Strawberry. <laughs> and I was upset that they were right too. And so in the high school annual of 1967, they have it in them bold print, Country Franklin. Smitty came to me my junior year and he said, Country, he said, you need to be playing football. I said, no, sir, coach. I said, I'm going to join the Marines because all of my neighbors around me were Marines. Two of them happened to be the halfback, starting halfback and fullback for the San Diego Chargers. And I mean, they were built like, whoo. I mean, they were swole. And so I thought I wanted to be a Marine. And of course, I had a lot of rage at that time. My dad was gone. My mom was raising 11 of us on the welfare. Everybody at school called us bombs, moochers, and beggars. Community was very cruel. And so I was full of rage. And as the gentleman said in the movie, Remember the Titans, hey, if I, gotta, if I have to go to school, I might as well punish somebody if I have to go to school. Well, that was my attitude. At least in football, I got to punish somebody and I didn't get in no trouble. And of course, I could have been a defensive player, but I did make All-American a defensive back and wide receiver. But growing up, I learned to play football. They have a, a, a cemetery in San Diego, the biggest cemetery in Southern California. It's five miles long. That was our hideout. And there was a space of 60 yards where there were no tombs and no graves. And that's where we played football. I don't know much about organized football, just used to playing sandlot. You go over here and you go over there and I'll throw you the ball. Smitty said, country, you need to be playing football. I said, no, sir. I said, I'm going to join the Marines. He said, you ever thought about playing football? I said, no, sir. I'm going to join the Marines. All I knew is I wanted to get out of that house with them eight sisters. Now, if you've ever lived with nine women in one bathroom, you know that's torture. Because sisters don't care about brothers. We'd be at the door. <laughs> we got to go. We got to go. And they said, die. We hope you die. We're not opening the door. Sisters are merciless. Fortunately, there was a gas station. About two miles down the road. And people always ask us, Franklin boys, how'd y'all get so fast? Going to the bathroom. What? Long story, about two miles. 
I said, no, coach. I said, I'm, I'm not in the sports coach. I said, I've, I've only been out in California nine years. I came from Louisiana. I'm a farm boy. I'm used to hunting and fishing, skinning squirrels and rabbits. Man, when I was in Louisiana, we heard people up in Chicago that they had chicken and dumplings. Who's going to take the time to pick the meat off the bone? Down where I was raised, we had squirrel and dumplings. And let me tell you something, that's some good stuff. You ain't had squirrel and dumpling yet. You ought to try that. <laughs> I said, no, sir, coach. I said, I'm not, not in the football. He said, what if I wrestled you? <laughs> I said, Smitty, you're funny. You at five foot, six and a half want to wrestle me? I said, coach, I will eat me a teacher. I said, I'm not known as an athlete at school, but in my neighborhood, I wrestle six or seven guys at the same time. I said, in my neighborhood, I'm known as Hercules. I said, coach, I'd eat you alive. All of 145 pounds he was soaking wet, I was 190 pounds. He's like, no. He said, what if I wrestle you and I beat you? I said, coach, go get another teacher so I can eat two or three teachers, but y'all ain't gonna beat me wrestling. I was confident in my wrestling. I didn't, wasn't confident in the classroom, but you get out there on that grass. The biggest man I wrestled weighed 500 pounds. He's the biggest man I ever played football, Bob Pointer. We played together out of Mesa, Arizona. 500 pounds had a 54 inch waist. And of course, seven of us lived in the same house, two bedroom house. We had a wooden floor, he broke the floor. He broke the toilet. He broke the couch, he broke every chair in the house. We had about a three-mile walk to school, so they got us one of those old Batman cars. You know that Plymouth car with the big raised rear lights? <laughs> big man got in and everybody accused us of starting low riding because when big man got in the car, he said, whoop. <laughs> that thing tilted. He broke the springs in the passenger side of the car. And after about three weeks, the thing just rolled that way. <laughs> And of course, at that time in 1967, there were not a lot of blacks being invited to black athletes, D1 schools. I'd watched O.J. Simpson play at USC. I'd heard about Mike Garrett. In Southern California, all of us young men dreamed about going to the University of Southern California because they were well known for winning championships and putting athletes in position to play at the next level of professional sports. Little did I realize that Smitty was going to be one of those individuals that changed the destiny of my life. At an 8 o'clock PE class, my junior year, and Smitty said, country? You need to be playing football. I said, no, Smitty, I'm not going that, that direction. I'm going to join the military. He said, I'll tell you what, you guys go ahead and play touch football. He said, me and country are going to go behind the building, and we're going to wrestle. He said, now, if I win, you'll go out for football. I said, coach, if you win, I'll go out for anything because I'm going to eat me a teacher. He ain't going to beat me wrestling, a little midget. He was about the size of Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise a midget too. All his wives are taller than he is. Mission impossible, he ought to stay married. How about that? Anyway, we went behind the building and 
Of course, I'm just kind of licking my chops. <laughs> because I'm going to eat me a little ice cream, vanilla, teacher. <laughs> he's going to be coffee, cream in my coffee. That's what he's going to look like. And I'm pretty confident. Little did I realize that Smitty had been a wrestler in the Marines. <laughs> this little midget. <laughs> we went behind that building, and that's the last time I saw that dude. Man, you talk about the Tasmanian devil. I couldn't catch him. Wherever I reached, he was the opposite place. Why that dude was quick? I finally got my hands on him. And by the time I clawed him and threw him about five yards and got back up, he was right the same place again. <laughs> well, after about 45 minutes, I said, Time out, coach. I'm tapping. I'm done. <sighs> I'm done. Ooh, Man, Smitty, I didn't know you was this fast. Ooh, what you have for breakfast? Ooh, Man, that dude was fast. He said, you got to go out for football. Little did I know that a dream was about to unfold. Because of this little white PE coach that saw something in me I did not see in myself. It's called potential. Well, that summer, before my senior year, I played offensive tackle my junior year on JV. I called nine touchdowns because none of our receivers could catch. <laughs> tackle eligible. The welfare department in 1966 implemented a program. All the kids whose parents were on the welfare, they could choose any job if they were over 16. They could choose any job in San Diego. And they would get paid a salary if they wanted to work. They could work in a lawyer's office. They could work in a courtroom. They could be a ball, bat boy girl for the San Diego Padres. Ball boy girl for the San Diego Clippers. San Diego Chargers. I could be a ball boy for the Chargers? Yeah, that's what I want. I want to go be around these big, ugly guys. Because there was a guy named Ernie Ladd. Ernie Ladd was the first big man, and he wasn't fat. He didn't have a belly. Ernie Ladd was a horse. He's the first brother I seen with a red fro, red eyebrows, red eyelashes, red beard, and freckles. <laughs> first black guy I seen that way. I think Ernie Ladd wore a size 19, size 20 shoe. I think Shaq wears a 25 somewhere around there. But just to be in the presence of someone that large was just spellbounding because you don't see those kind of people every day. And so sure enough, summer came and I went out to Escondido, California. And they took me to the Holiday Inn. And they said, you get to live at the Holiday Inn. You get your own room for three months. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? I ain't never stayed at a Motel 6. A Holiday Inn, a room? <laughs> Man, are you kidding me? I couldn't even go to sleep. I'll just walk around like my own bed. My own bed, I was used to sleeping with my two brothers who peed all over me every night. <laughs> and now, I get my own hotel room? Are you kidding me? I'm just walking around in the room like that. <laughs> I don't even want to climb in the bed. I don't want to mess it up. 
I couldn't believe it. You see, with 11 kids, we ain't never stayed anywhere outside of our household. My mother didn't allow no spending the night at nobody's house either. And we didn't have a car because there was no car with 11 seat belts. Hello? <laughs> Not in the 60s. I couldn't believe that. And finally, we get to go over to the facility there in Escondido for the San Diego Chargers. And man, you start seeing all these names. John Hadel, out of Kansas. Lance Alworth, out of Arkansas. Jim Dickey, Gary Garrison, Paul Lowe, Ernie Ladd, Larry Little. Wow, and here was Sid Gilman, the head coach. I mean, I'm just spellbound because I'm meeting people. They seem to be famous. I've seen them on TV. And of course, we're supposed to clean all their cleats and give them shirt and gear to wear under all their padding. And of course, they were all cussing up a storm, but that was nothing new to me. My mama cussed all 18 years of my life, and I ain't met nobody yet that can outcuss her. She was the only one allowed in our family to do the cussing. And I was just mesmerized. Wow. Here are these famous guys, and they start talking to me like I'm important. One day they were getting ready to scrimmage and John Hadle, he said, hey kid, step out. I stepped out and he said, warm me up. And he started throwing passes. And I started catching him. He said, hey kid. He said, whenever you catch a ball, you always tuck it. He said, because if you ever get to this level and you catch a ball, there is immediate impact. So you learn to catch and tuck. Because impact is coming. Yes, sir. And so I start catching and tucking. After about two weeks, he looked at me and he said, kid, he said, you got potential. I ain't never heard that word. I go back to my hotel room that night and I look in the mirror. What is this stuff, Potential. How can other people see it and me not see it? How can I have something and I don't know I got it? That was a new word for me. Well, after about two weeks, this all-pro receiver, Lance Alworth, he said, hey, kid, come here. Let me show you how to run a post route, a flag route, an in route, a not route, a comeback. He said, show me how to run routes. And in those days, every route was run with that rhythm. Every route was run with that rhythm. Paul Warfield became an all-pro because he ran every route with that rhythm. You couldn't tell if it was a post route, a comeback route, an in route, an out route because he ran with that same rhythm. One, two, three, four. It makes the defensive back turn his hips. After about two weeks, he looked at me and he said, kid, you got potential. Twice. Man, what is this stuff? Why can't I see it? And so I'm really wondering what this stuff is. Weekend comes up and a couple of guys, they said, hey, kid, what you doing over the weekend? I said, staring at my bed. (laughs) It's dry. It ain't wet. (laughs) They said, no, what are you going to do over the weekend? I said, just stay in the hotel room. There was no remote control, none of that. You just kind of got up and switched it 
Wasn't up to three channels back then. One guy walked over and he said, here, here's the key to my Camaro. He said, go home and show off to all your high school friends. What? You trusted me with your car? I, we don't have a car. You gonna trust me with your car? He said, you can't eat it. This guy that I barely know is gonna trust me with a brand new Camaro to go home. And I started thinking, okay, where do all the pretty girls live? Cause I'm rolling. <laughs> I got the top down, radio blasting, sunshine, blue skies. Please go away. Y'all don't remember that, do you? <laughs> My girl is sounding nothing, gone away. And everybody's like, what country? How did you? Don't worry about it. Woo. <laughs> Back in those days, they would heat the springs on the car. And around San Diego, Southern California, about every 10 feet, there was a bump in the road. That's the way they laid cement back then. Well, they would heat those springs up on the car, so every time you, you hit that little bump every 10 feet, it just kind of rocky. And that was the style back in the 60s. Everybody go down and hit that bump, and they heat them springs on the car, and it's just like sitting in a rocking chair. Man, I rocked all over San Diego. <laughs> next weekend, another guy gave me the keys to his car. The next weekend, another guy gave me the keys to his car. That was just amazing. These people trusted me more than I trusted me. First time in my life. As some people, they treated me like I belonged, like I was someone. The summer ended. And up until that time, that was the greatest summer of my life. That it was some professional athletes that treated me like I was a little brother to all of them. There was nothing that they had that they wasn't willing to share a vehicle, money, food, stories. It was quite moving. As we were saying our goodbyes, a gentleman walked over and he had a three-piece suit on. He said, are you Willie Franklin? I took off. <laughs> Because back in them days, if anybody wore a suit, Doug, they were FBI or undercover narcotic agent. <laughs> and if this dude's asking me if I'm Willie Franklin, I don't spend time asking questions, man. I'm already running. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he knew. He said, I'm not with the law. Oh, <laughs> man, don't scare me like that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was a few things I'd been getting into in those days. We had some potato chip factories out there in San Diego. I borrowed a few boxes in the evenings. Yeah. We had some uh, cucumber places there to make pickles. We borrowed a few barrels every few months when we ran out of food at my household because I was raised on powdered eggs, powdered milk, carnation. I didn't even bother pouring it in the water. I just poured it in my mouth. Just chewed it. I said, yes, sir. He said, my name is Mr. Jones. He said, I've been watching you the whole summer. He said, what are you planning to do after your senior year? I said, join the Marines. He said, do you ever think about college? I said, no, sir. Can't go to college. They got me in special ed classes. They told me I was ADD, AHD, and ABCDEFG. They said, I got some, some abilities that I 
that I can't learn this stuff. He said, Willie, I've been watching you all summer. He said, kid, you've got potential. Third time. All three times someone has said that, they are successful people at what they've been doing. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, you name the college. Any college you name. He said, I'll pay for four years. I started crying. That was outside of my dream box. That a stranger, a white man in 1966 is going to walk up to a little welfare kid and say he'll pay for four years for me to go to college anywhere I chose to go. I lost it. That was outside of my dream box. As I gathered my emotions, I said, sir, I can't let you do that. My mother has taught all of us 11 children that if you start taking handouts, you'll look for handouts the rest of your life. I said, I've been raised to work for whatever I get or achieve. I said, but sir, you have inspired me to do one thing. He said, yes, sir, what's that? I said, you have inspired me to find out what this potential stuff is. And therein began my journey. And that's why Luke 9, 23 and 24 has a whole lot to say to me. If any man would come after me, American Standard, old King James, if any man or woman, anthropos, would come after me, let them deny themselves. And so I used to make packs with what I thought was God. I said, okay, Lord, if I play in this football game and I don't lose any teeth, all right, I'll be a nice guy. And next time I say, okay, if I don't get my knee torn up, I'll be nice to the people. Before every game, I'm just kind of speaking to myself in the air. Okay, Lord, if you do this for me, then I'm going to be a nice guy. I I was just on the brink of unleashing all that rage that I had inside. My mom and dad were alcoholics, so I've never touched alcohol. I was afraid of alcohol that it would unleash the beast in me. I saw it happen to my mother. I watched her slice up men with butcher knives, some of these men that she brought home different evenings. And that scared me. And so I never touched alcohol. But I kept making these little packs with God. Well, I went back to school and I went up to the head coach at that time and I said, Coach, I want to play wide receiver because Lance always said, I got potential. I still didn't know what that word meant. (laughs) But if Lance always said it, it it must have meant something. He was an all-pro. He said, yeah, 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 everybody in this dog wants to be wide receiver. Get out there. And, of course, I went out there, and they threw me about 40 passes, and Coach was shocked because I caught everything. And I was shocked because I caught everything. (laughs) I had never played receiver in my neighborhood. I played center for both teams. You know who the center is? He's the worst athlete out there (laughs) in Sandlot. He said, well, maybe you do have potential. What are the chances of walking up to the head football coach your last year of high school? He don't know you from come here and sick him. And telling him you want to play wide receiver and you get to do that. Now I see it was God at that time. He put me out there and 
I end up making what is called all CIF, California Interscholastic Federation. And of course, everybody said it was a fluke. You don't play one year of varsity football and make all CIF. And of course, being in special ed classes, they gave me a certificate. It didn't say I graduated high school. It said I had attended 12 years of school. So one Saturday morning, me and Bugs, uh, we spending a Saturday morning together. Y'all know Bugs? What's up, Doc? Me and old Bugs Bunny. And I hear my dog outside barking because where I lived at, everybody turned their dog to loose after 9.30 at night. They kept all the gangs off your street. There are 50 dogs down each block and they're going to eat up something. And I hear my dog barking, which means that there's somebody he's chasing. I go out there and my dog Chubby, that was his nickname. We, I was fat man, he was Chubby. And he's chasing this white guy up a hill and he's got a three-piece suit on, Doug. Looking like you. And I said, Chubby, to the dog, get back here. And he came back and I said, now you stay in the yard. And I went back inside and me and Bugs, we were just getting it on. And I hear him barking again. I look outside, he's chasing the same old white guy. And there was no white people in that part of San Diego. I said, Chubby, come here. Now get in this yard like I told you. And the gentleman said, excuse me, sir, I'm looking for Willie. <laughs> when he called out my name, I'm off again. He had that suit on. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not with the law. Woo! Man, won't you say that first? <laughs> he said, I'm Megan Mud Ford from Macy Community Junior College. He said, we know that you can't go to a four-year school because you've been in special ed classes since grade seven. He said, we're a brand new college out in Mesa, Arizona. And we want you to come and play football for us there because who knows? You could get a scholarship to a D1 school. Really? Well, come on in, coach. Let's talk turkey. Well, he came inside and we got to talking and he's telling me all that Mesa has to offer. He left. A few days later, I found out the little girl that I was liking. She had five other boyfriends and I wasn't even in the top five. I said, that's it. I knew I wasn't made for this place, California. I'm getting out of this place. That'll get me close back to the south. So I called coach and got on that Greyhound bus and headed for Arizona. When I got to Arizona, of course, there were not a lot of black people in Mesa, Arizona at that time at all. We were some of the first. Couldn't find any apartments to rent, none of those things, and Coach had had a friend that had rental houses and he rented seven of us black guys a two-bedroom house. Four guys to a room because big man was counted twice. He weighed 500 pounds. <laughs> and of course, he needed a real big bed. And that became home for a couple of years. Now, each step of the way, I'm not thinking about pro football. Each step of the way, I'm going, man, I can't believe I get to go to college. I get to sit in classroom with normal people. <laughs> I'm used to being in, in a classroom with guys that every one of them got a juvenile hall record. Hello. <laughs> I could have had one. I just was fast enough I didn't get caught. <laughs> we won one game and we lost 10. 
The coaches lined us all up. They told all the white guys to go home. They lined all of us black guys up and cussed us out for two hours. Told them we were bums. That we stunk. We were no good. Well, all these other guys, their parents are sending them food in the mail, sending them money. Big man's mama sent these big old pumpkin pies. And he charged a, a dollar a slice. Didn't even give his roommate no food. And man, I'm starving. I've been living on Snickers for six months. <laughs> and you will act up if all you're living on the Snickers. <laughs> I like them new commercials they make about Snickers, man. I felt like I could eat a bear. The wrestling coach comes and he said, I hear you wrestling in high school. I said, yes, sir. He said, would you like to come out for a wrestling team? I said, can I eat? He said, what do you mean? I said, there's no food in that house other than what the guys tried to sell. I said, I hadn't had nothing to eat, a meal for six months. Do we get any kind of severance if we go to wrestling tournaments? He said, yeah. You get some money, we go to tournaments. I said, I'm on the wrestling team. Well, I end up making all conference of wrestling. Wrestling season's in, and I'm wondering, man, where am I going to eat now? So the track coach comes and he said, I hear you throw a football about 85 yards. Yes, sir. He said, would you like to throw a javelin? I said, what's that? He said, it's an eight foot long spear. I said, can I eat? He said, what do you mean? I said, there's no food in that house. And the only way I, I can eat is if, if we get severance money, when we go to track meets, he said, yeah, you get severance money. I said, I'm on the track team. I don't know what a javelin is, but I'm on the track team. Well, sure enough, I went out and threw the javelin about 225 feet, made All-American, and the coaches started catching on. The wrestling coach fed him, he makes All-Conference. The track coach feeds him, he makes All-American. What if we start feeding him? So the coaches started bringing truckloads of groceries to the house. Yeah! <laughs> well, guess what? I make All-American playing football. They said, man, if you feed this guy, ain't no telling what he'll do. And lo and behold, Chuck Fairbanks shows up. He was the head coach at Oklahoma at that time. Barry Switzer was offensive coordinator, Jimmy Johnson, defensive line coach. Galen Hall was a wide receiver coach. Larry Lacewell was a defensive coordinator. They went on to become well-known coaches. They took me there three times to Oklahoma University. Oh, yes, Bear Bryant sent a few people to try to get me coming out here to Alabama. But that wasn't happening. <clears throat> Amen. I didn't even know where Alabama was. <laughs> That's too cold down here, man. I'm Southern California, 78 degrees every day. Well, lo and behold, John McKay shows up from USC. So I fly up there three times to be with O.J. Simpson and Mike Garrett. Childhood heroes that I'd known a little bit about. They were my chaperones. I always thought about Smitty. Let me tell you why I thought about Smitty. I didn't know this was something that Smitty did. He would spot young men that had potential, but had no driving force, had no goal, no commitment. And Smitty had been challenging these young men for 20 years to a wrestling match, which he knew he would win. 
And he challenged him to go out for football, basketball, baseball if he won the wrestling match. The rest of the story is 10 years later, Smitty got fired because he challenged the kid to a wrestling match and that if he won, the kid had to go out for track and field. And he won, and the young man went home and told his parents. The parents went to the school board. The school board went to the principal, and Smitty got fired. And for years, I thought, I would have died in Vietnam had it not been for this little white guy, Smitty, to put his career, his job on the line because he saw potential in young men that they didn't see in themselves. I've never gone back to San Diego in 50 years without visiting Smitty while he was still alive and thanking him for doing something that most teachers wouldn't have done. That began my journey. Those people along the way, young folks, you cannot be successful without an army. What I mean by that is without a dad and mom, without a grandpa or grandmom, without a brother or sister, without a coach, without a teacher, every adult represents an army of people who were behind them, believing in them, encouraging them, motivating them, inspiring them, telling them that they had potential. You see, no one person stands alone. That's why Jesus said, if any man would come after me, man or woman, let him deny themselves. Here were people all along my journey denying themselves and taking an interest in me. I went into the president's office one day at Mesa Community, and I had some complaints because a teacher told me I had to write an essay. Not only could I not spell it, I didn't know what it was. An essay. And while I'm sitting there waiting to talk to the, the president, his secretary looks over and she said, Willie, who's going to type your term papers for you? Term paper, what's that? She said, you have to write term papers in some of your classes. She said, can you type? No, ma'am. I don't know nothing about typing. She said, just bring me your paper. She said, I'll type it for you. A total stranger? Again? Somebody I don't even know? Volunteering to take an interest in me? Why is she doing this? That was my question. What do they want? Why are these people being so nice? I didn't understand. God is always at work. And he uses people from all walks of life. Blanche Melkar is still alive. And she still lives in Mesa, Arizona. She's now in her 80s. And I still call Blanche. And I still say thank you for investing in me, for believing in me. Oh, yes, I went back and tried to teach her the Bible. She didn't want to hear the gospel. But it doesn't discourage me from thanking her for investing in me. Some kindness, some thoughtfulness, some consideration. And so Chuck Fredbank shows up and I decided to go to Oklahoma University. By the way, Doug, I got benched my senior year. 
I was a part of that 1971 game. It's called the game of the century. I was a part of it, but I was handing out Gatorade to everybody. <laughs> I went out for track and field at Oklahoma University. Chuck Fairbanks didn't believe in that. They said, when you play football at Oklahoma, just like Alabama, they're like Kentucky Fried Chicken. You do one thing. You play football. Well, they started professional track in 1970. And so if I didn't make it in pro football, I wanted to try to help my mother, who was still on the welfare, by getting in professional track, because I threw the javelin 253 feet, made All-American my sophomore year. So I went out for track and field. Chuck called me in. He had Barry Switch and Jimmy Johnson, and they said, you're not interested in football, so you're done in Oklahoma. You will never play another down at this school. You can transfer, you can go somewhere else, but you're not playing another down. Well, I didn't have any money to leave. Hello. Back then, you just, just didn't jump from one school to another school. There was still some loyalty. So I strapped it up and went to practice. They say, Willie, you're on the car team. For some of y'all that don't know about the car team, the car team are athletes whose parents might have went to that university. And so you get to come out for the football team, and all you do is run plays that the opposing team's going to run in the coming weeks against first-team defense, and all they try to do is break your neck. Anytime you go up against first-team defense, all they're going to do is hit you in the mouth. And you can't complain to nobody because you ain't nothing but a human dummy anyway. You ain't going to ever play in the game. You're not going to ever see daylight. So they made me start running card plays. And that was belittling, and it was humbling. But my attitude was I still had that rage. So I told the guys before practice, you better buckle up. Because if I get near you, I'm going to cave your face in, Jack. At that time, I was 215 pounds. There was no wide receiver in the big eight at that time, the big 12 now. There was no wide receivers. They weighed 215 pounds. Barely did our tight ends weigh that. And so I had no problem with DBs and linebackers. I was one. I just ran forward instead of backwards. And so when we went to practice, I was filling my fist up with fiberglass. If you got within three feet of me, I'm caving your face in. Because what you going to do about it? Because I knew they were trying to run me off. They were trying to give me that old saying called the shaft. And so every practice was a war. They were going after my knees, anything they could do to injure me. And I knew that. But that was nothing new. I was raised with eight sisters. They tried to kill me every day. My mama threatened me every day. Boy, I brought you in. And my mama revised it. She said, I can make some more look just like you and you won't even be missed. There are six after me and they think they're better looking. And so that didn't send no chill up my spine. I was used to that. And so from that July until January when we played Pat Sullivan and Auburn War Eagles in the Sugar Bowl 1971, it was war. And I carried rage and I carried anger because I knew I ran those card plays five days a week come Saturday. I didn't do nothing but sit around and collect splinters. I had a lot of rage. 
And I'm thankful to God that he didn't allow me to unleash that rage on anybody. I'm sure I'd have been in prison somewhere. Well, lo and behold, that year, it took me a few years to get over 1971. I was over there on the sideline hoping that Nebraska beat Oklahoma because they stacked an eight-man front to stop the wishbone, which means you got to cover your wide receivers man-to-man, and at 66 years old, ain't nobody in this building that can cover me man-to-man because I believe in this man. Take that. Because I know where I'm going. And you got to guess, DBs. I've seen a few of y'all back there. Yeah. Thinking you can cover me in your dreams. And if you dreamed about covering me, you better wake up and apologize. Because that's the attitude with which we have to play. You have to believe in yourself. I know I can't go back home. Ain't no room. There's not enough food. There's nothing for me back home. So everything for me lay on that field. So when I stepped on that ground, I'm owning that ground. I don't care if you're 500 pounds. I don't care if you're 190 pounds. I'm owning that ground if I'm on it. Well, I didn't know there was a young man named Ron Fletcher. He was one of the quarterback coaches at OU. I didn't. I noticed that none of the coaches sat with him in the dining hall. He was normally sitting by himself. Being a shy person in those days, I always studied people. I was observant. We won the Sugar Bowl game. The season ended. And in those days, we had what is called an alumni game. Now it's called a spring game. But we had an alumni game where all the guys who had graduated come back and those seniors scrimmage against the varsity in the spring to raise some funds for the alumni clubs and for the university. And so this coach came up to me, Ron Fletcher, and he said, Hey, Willie, he said, uh, I understand you got shafted. He said, but this alumni game that they now call the spring game, he said, I'm going to be playing and I'm the quarterback. He said, if you play in that game, I can throw you some touchdowns and you may get a tryout with a pro football team. I said, man, get lost. Oklahoma's not getting no blood and sweat out of me. They ruined my dream. I can't get my mother off the welfare. I'm done with this. And I'm done with this school. He said, man, I'm going to be the quarterback. I'll get you the ball. I said, man, you're a midget. I said, you can't even see over these guys when they bend over you're so short. How you going to get me the ball? He said, you just playing the game. No, I'm not playing in the game. I'm done with this school. They've ruined my dream. Well, he was a godsend. He was a lot like Smitty. I don't care how many times I said no, he never heard me. So I go to the dining hall and there he was. And he'd plop up and come over and sit by me. Oh, man. Come on, man. He said, come on, man. You got to play in this game. Did you hear me? I told you two days ago, I'm not playing in this game. He said, you got to play in the game. I said, I don't got to do nothing. I go to lunch, there he is again. You got to play in this game. Man, don't you have a life? Aren't you married? Go home to your family. Give me a break. (laughs) 
I go to dinner. There he was again. I didn't know he was broke as a joke too. <laughs> that he enjoyed eating in that dining hall. He was in grad school, assistant coach. I didn't know that he was a minister. I didn't know he was a youth minister. I didn't know he was the associate minister. I didn't know he was the janitor with the saints there in Norman, Oklahoma. He never mentioned that. Nobody else did. I just know that here's a coach that's getting on my nerves because he won't leave me alone. For the next three and a half months, I saw this dude for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I can't get rid of him. He's stalking me. I threatened him. He still shows up. I said, what do I have to do to get rid of you? He said, commit to playing in that game. I said, will it get rid of you? He said, yes. I said, I'm playing. I didn't know that he was a gospel preacher. And this little midget, all the five foot six, I play in the game and he throws me four touchdowns for 200 yards. And just like he said, Bobby Boyd, who was a defensive back coach for the Baltimore Colts, came down on the field and signed me to a walk-on contract. And I'm looking at this guy like, how does he know all this stuff? How did he know stuff like this could happen? And I knew as a walk-on, you get how many chances? You just get one shot because everybody's seeing you as a human dummy because you weren't drafted. And so for the first time in four years, I got to go home. I went back to San Diego and I trained from 9 o'clock in the morning to 9 o'clock at night, seven days a week. Because I knew as a walk-on, you get one shot. And nobody's giving you a shot. And so I trained all day for three and a half months. And I went to camp with Johnny Yu, John Mackey, Tom Maddy, Bubba Smith, Mike Curtis. Men I knew in my childhood that I never dreamed about playing with. Ended up making the team because of my conditioning. I got to go back to Oklahoma University and I got to student teach. That's all I got to do to get my degree. I go back to Oklahoma University and one Saturday morning, I bet you can't tell me who it was. I knock on the door, open the door. It's this midget. He's like, you remember me? I, well, <laughs> yeah, man, you're that midget that threw me four touchdowns. He said, I want to talk to you about Jesus. I said, I'll talk to anybody about Jesus. Ain't nobody following Jesus no more. Everybody just found a little church group. They got their little social club that they go to, and they sit with all the little social club members, and then at night you can't find them with a search warrant. I said, when I start asking questions, then they, they, they get the hot seat. They don't want to answer my questions. He looked at me. He said, start asking. And I thought, this guy's wanting me to ask some of my questions. He wants to be barbecued. And of course, I learned enough. All the upheaval going on in our culture with racism and all this stuff going on. I knew questions to ask to put people on the spot. I'd already been asking them of religious people. Got any Hispanics at your church? Got any black folks at your church? Got any Africans at your church? Y'all all come together or are you separating because of race, income, or gender, or education? And so I was throwing everything I could out there to expose people who were not being what I believe to be true 
to what a believer is supposed to be. Up until that point, that's all I knew. I knew that there was a God, that I was made in his image. But why all the upheaval? Why aren't those who call themselves believers, why can't we all come together and just be a people? And he started going to the scriptures and showing me scriptures. Every question I ask him, that's in Matthew 5. That's in Matthew 6. That's in John 3. That's in Luke 9. I said, man, how do you know your Bible so well? He said, like I said, that's what I live by. That blew me away. He knew his Bible better than I knew my playbook. I never met anybody that had read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He had. Not only had he read through the entire 66 books, he knew how to find each one of them in the Bible. <laughs> I couldn't do that. And so we commenced to study. He said, You a Christian? I said, Yes, I'm a Christian. I said, I don't smoke, I don't drink, and I don't chew, and I don't date girls that do. Amen. And down in Louisiana, my mama and my seven aunts, they chewed red man into their 80s. Hello. <laughs> I got a tough mama. And so we began to study the scripture. I said, I don't want your opinions. I want BCV, I call it, book, chapter, and verse. God is amazing. Because this guy knew book, chapter, and verse for every question I asked for two weeks. He just turned in the Bible. He said, I'm not going to ask you, answer your questions. He said, I'm going to let Jesus do that. And of course, being from the South and being black, he knew that I wasn't going to question Jesus. Amen. <laughs> he just say, let me show you what Jesus said about it. Well, I ain't going to argue with him. He said, how do you know you're a Christian? And of course, I've been surfing channels. On Sunday mornings. I hadn't gone to a church building since I was 12 years old. That's the last time my mama said we had to go. Last time I darkened the door for 13 years. He said, how do you know you're a Christian? I said, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I, I believe in Jesus and God. And I had a religious experience. Everything I'd ever heard on the TV, I threw it at him. He said, now I want you to find one person in the Bible that will save like you. And of course, I picked it up and I was going, I couldn't find Genesis in the Bible. I didn't know it meant beginning. He said, I can help you. All right, he bailed me out. He said, ain't nobody in the Bible that will save like that. Man, you can't say that. He said, I'm saying it. He said, open up your Bible and let's go to the book of Acts. And so we went to Acts chapter 1 and we read about preparation there where the apostles were waiting on the coming of the Spirit out of Joel 2.28 happened in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. So we read Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4 and Acts 5 and Acts 6, Acts 7, Acts 9, Paul's conversion, Acts 10, Cornelius' conversion, Acts 11, instant replay of Cornelius' conversion, Acts 12, Acts 13, first missionary journey, 14, 15, 15, Jerusalem Council, 16, 17, second missionary journey. We went through the whole book of Acts. Apollos, 
Priscilla and Aquila taught him the way more perfectly. We went through all the conversions in the book of Acts. He said, I didn't find one person in there that was saved like you. He said, what does that tell you? I said, I don't know what it tells you. I'm still a Christian. I wasn't backing up. He said, well, let's go read some of what Jesus said. So we start reading through Mark 16. We start reading through John 3. We start reading through Luke chapter 7. He said, do you notice that all of these people in the Bible did the same things to be saved? And I have not found one person in the Bible that did what you did. You said you did to be saved. Well, that really started working on me. I hadn't thought about that. I said, well, let's get off that conversion stuff. Uh, let's go over here and talk about miracles and speaking in tongues. He said, no, we're going to talk about salvation. Because if we can't agree on salvation, we ain't going to agree on nothing else either. Well, yeah, that's true. And after about three hours, I wanted to get him out of my apartment. I said, okay. I said, I'm done. I said, uh, come back next week. He said, no, I'm not coming back next week. I said, okay, come back in a couple of days. He said, I'm not coming back in a couple of days. He said, you'll let me know right now what you're going to do about the gospel, about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And I'm thinking, man, this little midget is trying to get tough with me. I'm starting to sweat. I'm starting to get a little hot in here. Whoa. <laughs> man, I feel some heat. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, man. You, you, you can't tell me I'm not a Christian. So we read through the conversion of Paul. Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. Paul recounts his conversion three times. While Apollos is at Corinth, Acts 19 says, Paul, having passed the upper coast, came to Ephesus and he found certain disciples and he said unto them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we didn't even know where the Holy Spirit was given. He said, okay, now why were you baptized? They said, under John's baptism. Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance that he was saying to the people that they should believe on him that came after him. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. He said, here's what Paul was preaching because that's what Paul did. So we read Acts 22 about Paul's conversion that rocked my world. Here's a man that wrote half the letters in the New Testament and here he is talking about his conversion. The Bible says Paul beckoned with his hand and when he heard that he spake to them in the Hebrew dialect, he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, instructed according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God even as you're all this day. He said, and I persecuted the way even unto death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, and even the high priest bear me witness from whom I received letters to journey to Damascus to receive those who was there to be in chains and in bonds. He said, and it came to pass that as I made my journey about noon, Suddenly a great light shone around about me. And there a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, sir? He said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. He said, what would you have me to do? He said, arise and go into Damascus. And there it's appointed you all the things that you must do. He said, when I could not see because of the glory or greatness of the light, being led by the hand of those who were with me. I came to Damascus, and one Ananias, a devout Jew, well reported out by all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, standing by me, said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. He said, in that very hour, I looked upon him. 
He said, the God of our Father has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Verse 16 says, now why tarriest thou, King James? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. When I started reading what Paul did to become a follower of Christ, it didn't coordinate with what I was claiming that I did. And I looked him in the eye. And I said, I have to be truthful with you because the word was convicting me. I said, I'm not a Christian. I know that. I just wasn't willing to admit that to you. But now because of what I see in the scripture, nobody's ever taught me about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. I never knew that in that watery grave that you come in contact with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection through his spirit. And that's how sins are forgiven. And that's how we're added to the body of Christ. Romans 6, 3, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Only three places in the Bible that tells you how you get into Christ. For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Do you not know all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus was baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him through baptism in the death. Like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. I said, I see it right there in the scripture. I said, okay, I'm ready. He said, call, call, call everybody in the, in the football team. Have the whole football team. No, 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 no. I was still embarrassed. I said, this is between me and God. We went down to the church building at 1.30 in the afternoon, April 26, 1973. And he immersed me into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Another turning point, the greatest turning point in my life. I never knew that I could learn the Bible. I never knew I could know the will of God. I didn't have to depend on some preacher. I didn't have to depend on some person. I could learn it for myself. I never knew that. And so as we began to set up Bible studies and he begins to teach me in the off season, I made my mind up. I'm going back to the Baltimore Colts and I'm converting that whole Baltimore Colts team. I'm on fire! They better look out. I'm bringing the gospel. Man, I went back. Burt Jones, that was, some of y'all might remember Burt out of LSU. That was his rookie year. My second year, he came to camp. He told me it already had enough religion <laughs> when I tried to study with him. Lydell Mitchell had come out of Penn State. They brought in some new guys. I was called the religious fanatic. And all my teammates turned on me. What? You're a black guy, you don't drink? Man, you're a black guy, you don't go to clubs? You don't chase women? No, I'm a country boy. You just give me my dog and a fishing pole and I'm happy. <laughs> And so that second year was a trouble year. You see, these guys were saying bye to their wives and hello to the girlfriends in the town we were landing in. You see, when you go to consistent towns and play teams in your conference, all the women know where the plane lands. And there's about 300 of them at every airport. And they know if they have one baby by you for the next 18 years, they're on the gravy train. You got to pay them money. 
And then the wives started coming to me going, is my husband cheating? If I tell the truth, I'm putting guys' business in the streets. Teams don't keep you around. If I don't tell the truth, I'm not a Christian. See, for since my 16th birthday, football, athletics had been my drug of choice. Drug in the sense that it dominated me. It's something I did daily. I trained, I ate, I slept sports. That was my identity. When I became a Christian, they clashed. And the reason they clashed was sports had dominated my life. Eventually football. And now as I began to take up my cross, deny myself, and follow after Christ, there was a conflict because as Jesus was starting to dominate my life, I was starting to lose a passion for football. I no longer got a rush from hitting somebody in the mouth, from popping them underneath that chin strap and making the helmet fly off. That no longer became a rush because I knew that 99% of the guys I was playing against were lost. I knew that 99% of the people in those stands when I was running back punts, looking up in the air in a sea of people, and all you could hear is, kill him, kill him. And that rush you got, hearing them scream, kill him. And you're looking up in the air, not knowing if you're going to get cold cocked. There was no such thing as giving a five-yard space. Not when I played. When I played, it wasn't football unless it was unnecessary roughness. You're going to get hit in the mouth every play by somebody. So if you ain't hitting somebody in the mouth, you're going to get hit in the mouth. I no longer got a rush out of that. Because as I began to learn about the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth man, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That passion was being torn. I knew that in order for me to be faithful, I never had two girlfriends. I was not used to being disloyal. If I'm committed to one thing, I'm committed to one thing. And I committed to Jesus. Football was a girlfriend. On Sundays, I couldn't be here because my girlfriend had me running up and down the football field. I couldn't be with the saints. I didn't know the, how to sing all these songs. I didn't know the pitch. I didn't know anything about what key they were in. And I was coming here learning a lot of new songs and I couldn't put my heart in it because the Bible says we're supposed to sing from the heart. I couldn't put my heart in it because I didn't know the song. And then I didn't know what the words meant. Not at Ebenezer. You know what Ebenezer is? I didn't know what an Ebenezer was. An Eben Pinion. And those things began to eat at me. 
And so that second year I was torn. Chuck Muncie played with the New Orleans Saints, a running back. Chuck Muncie's older brother played with me, Nelson Muncie, as a defensive back with the Baltimore Colts. We used to do what is called one-on-one drills. It was an outside drill, just between wide receivers, defensive backs and safeties, and halfbacks. No interior linemen. It was mano el mano, man to man. There was no such thing as zone. All zone says is, you ain't man enough to cover me. So you need some help. Well, they didn't have zone in the NFL back then. And so every day, we did a 45-minute outside drill. Just DB and wide receiver. You're on your own. All eyes are on you. And let's see who can dominate who. Well, we had this guy out of Michigan State named Glenn Dowdy. He had been drafted. I was not. And he had gone after Nelson Muncie, and in those days, you didn't have to wear knee pads, and Nelson Muncie didn't. You didn't have to wear hip pads. It's a requirement today in the NFL because they're getting sued by so many ex-players. Glenn Dowdy ran downfield and dove into Nelson Muncie's knees. That's a no-no. You never went after a guy's knees. That could end his career. Well, Nelson Muncie was angry, and I was the next guy to come up on the ball. And in those days, you couldn't stand up in a two-point stance. You had to get down in a three-point stance as a wide receiver. Well, the defensive back just walked right up on you. You couldn't stand straight up. You had to come off the ball. And so he knew to cold cock you. And of course, I'm a brand-new Christian. Hadn't been a Christian, but about two months or so. And I can see the fire in his eyes. And I'm saying, okay, Lord, if he tries to hit me in the mouth, I'm going to kill him. Nelson Muncie weighed all of 175 pounds. He ran about a 4340. I was 215 pounds and I ran a 4640, but I ran it any direction. Because I was an 18 wheeler, I come with a load. And I can see the fire and I can hear him breathing. And I'm saying, Lord, if he hits me, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And so I come up and I give him a juke. He swings and misses. And I get by him. Coach says, same team on the ball. Oh, man. I know this time he's going to walk up even closer. You know, in practice, they don't call offsides. You know, defensive players get to cheat every day in practice. That's why they get all them flags in the game. They hold. Tell, come on, wide receivers, tell the truth. They cheat, they hold in practice. So he walks right up on me. And he's offsides, but he don't care. He's mad. And I'm saying to the Lord, okay, Lord, if he hits me, I'm going to kill him because I got 25 pounds on him. And I raise up and pow, he hits me in the jaw. And I remember going back saying, okay, Lord, if he does that one more time. (laughs) The fire was leaving. I knew Nelson wasn't a Christian. And for me to be a brand new Christian, for me to go off on Nelson... They were all calling me preacher man. They heard I'd become a Christian in the off season. What's up, preacher man? We'd fly into different towns to play teams. we get off the plane and there's all them women. And they're coming off the plane going, hey, mama, how you doing? Oh, mama, you looking good. Now, this is the preacher man. He ain't into chasing women, but I am. So leave the preacher man alone. They just loud talk me. 
And of course, that was okay by me. Three weeks later, Nelson Muncy comes to practice. He comes to my locker. He said, uh, Willie, he said, I want to apologize for what happened three days ago. He said, my wife and I are convinced that you're a real Christian. Could you set up a Bible study with us? Rock my world. I knew Jesus took blows for me. I didn't know me taking blows for him would open the door to teach somebody the scripture. That was the beginning of my experience of losing that fire for pro football. It wasn't a drug to me anymore. I didn't get any rush. There was no thrill, no excitement about beating somebody down, about dominating someone. I'd look up in the stands and I'm seeing half these people that are drunk off their feet and they come into the gladiator arena and they want to see punishment. All I could feel was compassion for them. I found a little girl that I was liking and I read it to her straight. I said, look, I'm a new Christian. I can't hug you. I can't kiss you. I can't even hold your hand. She said, why not? I said, because you're a devil and I'm a Christian. I didn't have a lot of tact in those days. I just attacked. And of course, she's like, ah! okay, okay. What I, what I mean is, you lost and I'm saved. She cried harder. Ah! I didn't know how to say what needed to be said. I said, you make me feel like a hyena. They're scavengers. And I'm supposed to get all I can get off of you before you die. She's like, what? We wasn't on the same page. I see people that are lost. I didn't see her as a girlfriend. She was someone that was lost. She needed the gospel. And I kept telling this guy that taught me, Ron, you got, you got to come talk to this person. He said, I can't teach your friends. They're not my friends. They're your friends. You got to teach them. I said, I, I, don't, I don't know the Bible. I can't read. He said, ah, that ain't no problem. Well, the educational system thought it was. <laughs> he said, look, do you know any radio songs? I said, yeah. My girl, my girl, talking about my girl, my girl. I'm talking about my girl. I got sunshine on her. Yeah, I know some radio songs. He said, if you got radio songs memorized, you can read. I ain't never heard a teacher say that. I've never heard an educated person say something like that. He said, if you can memorize a radio song, you can read. I said, what are you talking about? He said, buy the whole Bible on cassette. And I did, and there was about 30 of them. He said, if you'll listen to 20 chapters a day, he said, you'll learn to read. And that's how I learned to read from 1973 to 1977. I listened to 20 chapters a day. And I learned to read for the first time in my life. A few years later, I was able to get comprehension as I got a Bible dictionary and started learning word meanings. Oh, yes, and by the way, I did find out what potential meant. <laughs> it's in all of us. The caterpillar and the butterfly, it's called metamorphosis when you go from a worm to a butterfly.
Because I believe you can. I believe you can. You think about it every. So spread your wings and just. See, I knew you knew it. Yeah. That's potential. It's in all of us. God put it there from birth. I just found out late. I'm a late starter. And so I called my mom. I said, Mom, I'm done. She said, what, son? I said, I'm done playing pro football. She said, son, we need the money. I said, no, you don't, Mama, because you're still drinking. You're not changing your life. Money has not changed your life. I said, I want to learn my Bible. Because if there's a God, and I believe there is, then there's a purpose for me, and I want to find out what that purpose is. I quit pro football because the fire was no longer there. I quit pro football because I wanted to be here on Sundays, not running up and down the football field. And the reason I wanted to be here because there are people in this assembly that's stronger than I, that's closer to God than I, that have more godliness than I in this fellowship, and I want some of that. And each time I fellowship with Christians, I can get some of that. Amen? That's what happens in this fellowship. We grow. God moves through this family. My mind was on being here with the saints rather than running up and down a football field. One of the last games I played in was against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Some of y'all old enough to remember that steel curtain. Mean Joe Green. All six foot seven, 290 pounds of him. Dwight White. They had people with names that sounded like breakfast. Ham, lamb, green. They had won quite a few Super Bowls there. They called the dynasty team of the 70s. And we were going to play them. And of course, all I could think about was, all I want to do is get on TV so I can say, Hi, Mama! You know how us guys are about our baby girl, Mama. Just to say, Hi, Mama. And so you got to stand by the Gatorade or you got to stand by the coach. That's where the camera always scans. And of course, you get next to coach, you know what he's saying, Starbury. Get back! Get back! He wants to show to himself. We had a guy on Baltimore's coach team. His name was Don Nottingham. Don Nottingham is called the human bowling ball because he was five foot two, 260 pounds. He was five foot two every direction. <laughs> Don McCafferty was the head coach because John, uh, Don Shula had taken off to Miami. The second half rolled around. And Coach Shula turned around and he said, Don Nottingham, get in the game. Willie Franklin, get in the game. What? I started shaking. I couldn't move my knees. I don't want to get eaten by that steel curtain. I just wanted to say hi to my mama. I didn't want to play no football. Because in those days, like I said, they didn't just tackle you. They beat you down all the way to the ground and it was legal. And we go in the game and 
They call it a 24 trap. For some of you women that don't know anything about football, when you hear a quarterback going, white 36, white 36, well, that last number, if it's even, is going to be to your right. Where the center is, that's two. Where the guard on his right side, that's four. Outside is six. So if you hear that last number, 22, 34, it's something to the right. If it's a real checkoff, or it could be a dummy call, because you have to do that too. People pick up your signals. If you hear an odd number, like one, three, or five, or seven, that's going to be to the left. When they said 24 trap on two, you know who played tackle in that four hole? A guy named Mean Joe Green. You don't trap 290 pounds. And I'm thinking, it was nice knowing you, Don. <laughs> Because they're going to eat you. And of course, as a receiver, I got to go down and block whoever rolls up safety defensive back. I'm running downfield. I see the safety roll and I go in to go at the safety and I hear pow! Just an echo. And I look back while I'm running downfield and the ball is rolling on the ground by itself. They ate him that fast! And I'm going, they ate him! And the ball's just rolling on the field. And of course, I thought, pick it up so they can eat you. <laughs> but you know, coaches, they always say, don't think, react. That was your problem. You thought. <laughs> react. So I reacted. I just picked it up and started running. And as I was running, I kept tripping over something. I looked down, it was my tongue. Because <sighs> I knew they were coming. And at that time, Mean Joe Green ran a 4.6 in the 42 at 290 pounds. Bubba Smith ran a 4.4 4 at 290 pounds. And I just happened to glance over at the sideline and I saw that peacock. I believe that's what it's called. And it hit me that the camera and all eyes were on me. Because I got the ball. They say that under extreme pressure, your life flashes before you. And my life was flashing when I saw that camera because I knew. I can see my mama sitting there going, that's my boy. I didn't know my name was Willie until I went to college. Boy, what are you doing? Boy, get out of here. Then I could see my eight sisters sitting there going, that's our brother, that's our brother. And they never claimed to be related to me. And of course, life is flashing, and I can see all them girls that wouldn't like me in junior high and in high school, and I was going, in your face. I'm slowing this down. Enjoy this moment. Everything is just flashing. And then I hear a noise that I'd never heard before. I said, I don't remember no Mack trucks being out here on this field. But hey, I'm in the moment. And I hear it again. And now it's starting to get closer. And then it's, I'm hearing it more often. Do you know why they don't turn those microphones on the sidelines? If they turned those microphones on on the sideline, everybody in that stadium would run out of there. Because people don't breathe normal down on that field. 
They sound like animals. And then, of course, they're talking about your mama, your daddy, and everybody else you know. Trying to distract you from thinking about what your assignment is. And I happened to look behind me, and I saw two numbers. A big seven, and it was getting larger. And five, number 75. You know who that is? Everybody still knows who that is. And the first words out of my mouth, and I thought I was pretty tough. Mama! (laughs) I heard that dude breathing like a Mack truck for 60 yards. He chased me all the way into the end zone. I wasn't trying to go that way, just why I ended up. (laughs) And he was still coming, so I threw the ball to the official. Eat him. (laughs) Every now and then I run into Mean Joe. We don't say a lot, but we just laugh. Because he knows if he'd have called me that night, I wouldn't be here. He'd have ate me. (laughs) You see, when I became a Christian church, everybody in my world was lost. How could I continue to be selfish and just think about me? Yeah, that was tough when my mom got upset at me. She cut me loose for 10 years, including my eight sisters and two brothers. They were angry because I quit pro football and the money stopped coming. We've since made up with one another in a lot of ways, a lot of ways we hadn't. Seven of them still aren't Christians. My two brothers are not. Everybody I knew was lost. How could my mind stay on football? I'd gotten what I needed. I'd gotten an education. Gotten a wonderful experience. But it was something more important. It was about someone's soul. Have you ever wondered what this life is all about? Why are you here and where are you going when your lease on time runs out? Well, maybe you've been a bit too busy trying to reach your goal. Can I ask you one question? Have you thought about your soul? You may reach your highest portal and success may shine on you. Wealth and fame may be your fortune and your dream, they may all come true. And maybe just, maybe not a care on you will roll. But what about the great tomorrow? Have you thought about your soul? Well, don't forget, though you might be riding high, like all of us poor mortals, One day you too will up and die. Your wealth, your fame, your fortune won't be worth the rust or the mold. And that's why I like to take some time to ask people, have you thought about your soul? Everybody in my world was lost. What was I going to do? Just stay selfish? Just keep looking out for number one just for me? That's not the way God's word teaches If Jesus died on the cross for me to take my sins, is this not good news that I can take and share with someone else? Because I talked to enough guys, they were searching like I had been. They had questions. They wanted to know why so many churches? Why am I here? What's going to happen when I die? I've been able to find the answer to all those questions. Wow. Never thought that possible. And so it was only natural. I lost a passion for pro football because I developed a passion for Christ. Let me read that scripture to you again. If any man or woman will come after me, let them deny themselves, 
take up their cross, whatever struggles you encounter, and follow after me daily. For whoever finds their life is going to lose it. You just keep on doing what you've been doing once you become a Christian. But whoever loses their life, changes their life, for my sake, shall find it. You see, Jesus intended for the gospel to be life-changing. Doesn't mean you got to quit work. It just means that that becomes your life. He does. And anything that conflicts with that. I could get another job. Everybody likes a hard worker. I don't have a problem working hard. When I was with the Los Angeles Rams, a guy asked me this question. Hit me right between the eyes. Never thought a football player would ask me that question. He said, Willie, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. He said, I don't follow you around. How do I know you're not drinking? How do I know you're not chasing all these women? How do I know you're not sleeping around or getting high? He said, I don't follow you around. He said, what I'm saying is, I haven't seen you give up anything for Jesus. Pow. Guess where he hit me? Right between the eyes. I never dreamt that a football player would state a question like that. I don't see you giving up anything for Jesus. It was time. Two years was enough. All of them knew that I was striving to walk with the Lord. And so the challenge was there. What was I willing to sacrifice? Because did not Jesus sacrifice something? Did he not give up heaven? Did he not give up omnipresence? With God, his position, sitting at his right hand, he gave all of that up even before the cross. In order to tell us who've been beaten down by sin that we have value. I didn't think I had any value until I started learning the gospel of Christ. I have value apart from sports. I have value apart from wealth. I have value simply because I've been made in God's image. And I'm a child of the king. Do you know what a relief it was? Not to have to jump through a hoop. Not to have to throw a javelin 253 feet. Not to have to score five or six touchdowns to just be me. So much relief from stress. I could just be me, as someone said. Be you. Who else is better qualified? We're all born original. But most people die copies. Who you copying? Can't nobody be you but you, and that's what God made you to be. He made you to be you, and he helps bring out you. Because the you and all of us connect with each other. We all have something to offer the saints to help tear down the walls of racism or indifference or gender or education or wealth or poverty. You see, we were given that talent from birth to get over those walls. I quit pro football. That was no longer a passion. I couldn't touch lives in the suit that I was in. 
People would say about pro football athletes, if you've seen one, seen them all. I get thrown in with everybody else. There comes a point in time where you have to separate and step away. I know that will happen with my son. At the University of Missouri, when he got there, the black guys took my son aside and they said, we need to talk to you. You're going to be our starting quarterback. They said, you don't act black. (laughs) He said, I was raised to act like a Christian, like the Lord. They said, you don't have no tattoos. He said, my dad gave me all I wanted, same spot. They said, you don't wear no earrings. He said, in my family, all the girls wear their earrings. What? What? Wait till we get you on that field. Well, at 6'3", 240 pounds, he developed a nickname called Tank. I was told by the coaches that he pancaked every first team player, Alden Smith, Weatherspoon, Richardson, all of them. I said, son, by your junior year, if you are worth your salt, your junior year, you're going to start teaching people the gospel of Christ because then they will know by the time you're 21 if you're for real or not. They will have put you through the test. He taught and baptized two trainers at the University of Missouri. Kentrell Brothers, who's the middle linebacker, number 10, he baptized him. Molly Krecklow, who has already made the Olympic volleyball team, was All-American at the University of Missouri. She, too, became a child of God his junior year. I went there for his graduation. He was due to graduate in three years. The coaches told me, not one coach, not one player will use vulgarity around James Franklin. They said, because we know that he's for real. He lives what he believes. It makes a difference. When you are who you are, wherever you are. I know sooner or later, he's going to lose that passion. I haven't said a word to him about it. He's playing with the Edmonton Eskimos. That's his decision. And he's got to make that decision based on his faith. Amen, church? Amen. Now, my little brother asked me to lead a song. Right, preacher? Didn't you ask me to lead a song, preacher? Did you say amen or are you acting like you got Alzheimer's? <laughs> well, I want to lead a song because anytime my little brothers ask me to lead a song, I want to oblige. Because one day, I'm hoping that they'll be in this position. <clears throat> amen. And I can be sitting out there listening to them. Don't tell him to be quiet. It's okay. He can't get louder than me. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God, Jehovah. Amen. See the baby Jesus. A lion in a manger. Well, it was early one morning. Amen. Hey, hey, hey. See him in the temple. 
talking with the elders. Oh, how they marvel at his wisdom. Amen. Amen. Born down in Bethlehem. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. He's a great I am. Amen. Amen. Down at the Jordan. John baptized him for saving all sinners. Amen. Day. Hey, hey. Smile while you sing it. Hey. Hallelujah. Praise God, Jehovah. Hey, amen. 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 The church said, appreciate your patience. I know what time it is. Amen. I wanted to get you out of your comfort zone because God don't play zone. He play man to man. Because 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Hello? That day will be man to man. Amen. And that's why I stay in evangelism. Because I can get away with that, Doug. Because, see, I'm leaving and going back home Wednesday morning. Hello. Thank you for your patience. And I do hope something has been said to motivate, encourage, uplift, inspire you and your walk of faith. You have decisions to make. I don't believe that God loves me more than he loves you. I don't believe that I've given up anything more than you are challenged to giving up. All of us are challenged, as we saw in Luke 9, to change our lives so that it comes in harmony with Christ. We're all challenged to do that. So don't think my life is more important than yours. It's not. Your life has a story, and there is someone who can be moved by your story. So I do hope something has been said to inspire, to build up. You have a song. My little brother is going to lead a song. And we're here. If you are interested in a Bible study, we'd love to study with you. If you've got questions, we'd love to show you what those answers are in the Bible. And if you just want to visit and stay around, as you can tell by my feathers, I'm a night owl. Amen. Come on, y'all. Amen. I like, in other words, I like to sit up late into the night. I baptized a young girl that became my wife at 3.30 in the morning. We broke three-inch ice in the baptistry to immerse her. It was freezing, snowing cats and dogs. And I was hoping she would wait to moaning. <laughs> I didn't realize it was moaning. <laughs> and so don't worry about the hour. If there's a need that you have, let us, let us stand if you need.